Hey, what's up, and welcome to Ski Stuff, the all-encompassing ski podcast. Today on Ski Stuff, I'm your host, Tommy Sakla, and we're going to be doing something a little bit different. We're going to be having another conversation with Rianne and Julia from NatureScope and The Struggle is Real. We're going to be having more of a discussion on Shakespeare and how it connects to our topics and other things like Romeo and Juliet and some other bits within our project and how they connect to skiing, mental health, and the BC outdoors. This may be crazy, but you just gotta listen to the episode to find out how. I'm uh, Thomas Yakla from Ski Stuff. Welcome back to our podcast. Today we're doing another conversation episode with Rian from Rian's Scope and Julia from The Struggle is Real. Uh, today we're going to be talking about um, more Shakespeare, more skiing, more mental health, and more BC Outdoors, and a couple of other things that kind of connect to the topics, some that don't. I'm going to start off, and we're, we're going to start off uh, talking about what makes an adaptation. And there's been lots of adaptations uh, within skiing. Uh, the first skis were used several thousand years ago in Scandinavia and in China both have been uh, found to use skis and variants of skis. Um, seal hunters, they were used for hunting, seal hunting especially because they would have to be nice and quiet to get up to the seals. Um, and around 1850s when skis started really becoming modernized, uh, people in uh, Telemark, Norway invented the cambered ski. So under the foot there's a little arch um, so it distributes the weight over the skis quite nicely. Um, move forward another hundred years and we got uh, aluminum skis. Um, uh, brands start emerging like Head and um, things like that. And so with those, the introduction of those skis, skis progressed even more. Um, ski racing started up in 1962. Uh, the fiberglass ski was first made and it was used to win two gold medals. By the late 60s, aluminum had been largely replaced by fiberglass, um, and multiple companies had patented certain designs. Um, in 93, uh, Elan first introduced a modern geo ski, and it was like with the tip much wider than the waist. And in 1995, Line introduced the twin tip skis. Ski shape hasn't changed much since then, but the materials used and the length and widths have changed a little bit. With ski adaptations, you know, new skis have come out. Have you two been skiing before? Uh, yeah, I learned when I was pretty young. I, I don't do it much though, but yeah. I really enjoy it. Ryan? Yeah, I, I learned it when I was... I did a couple lessons and then, you know, I went skiing with my brother and my aunt and my mom. Uh, but, you know, I've, I haven't been skiing recently and I, I really want to learn again uh, because a lot of my friends ski and, mm-hmm. you know, I always want to be able to go up the mountain for a day and just be able to ski. Yeah, you probably didn't realize, but those skis that you're skiing on are. They might not seem great, they might seem heavy, they might seem, you know, unwieldy, but they're several hundred years of technology and advancements in the making, and 
the skiing and skiing industry. Um, uh, the ski industry has made lots of adaptations throughout the years. Uh, speaking of adaptations, Julia, has the mental health or anything to do with your topic, um, parts of, you know, life made any adaptations? Yes, for sure. Like, like I said in the last episode is since the 1590s, uh, there have been like huge changes and lots of progress with that. Um, because back, even in the 1960s, like if you were, if you had like a mental illness or something, you would just go right away to like a mental asylum or a, yeah. Institute. Yeah. yeah. So, and now these days, back in 2014 is when everything was like started taking, getting like, you know, everything was like starting to get taken seriously. Now we have like tons of counseling all over the world. We have medications and yeah, it's made a huge difference and that helps a lot. You can also see like mental health adapting um, to be taught in curriculums these days. Like you'll have mental health um, specialists come in and talk about ideas and counselors are more helpful and supportive. Like I guess schools have been adapting to fit these problems and learning disabilities as well, like ADHD and dyslexia. Yeah, for sure. And it's really great how they do that now because even if you're not, you don't have some sort of like mental illness or you're struggling with something, you can still learn how to help people cope with it. You can learn coping mechanisms for yourself. So I find that's like a really good thing that they have programs like that all over the schools and like places like that. Yeah, and mental illness has also made an impact in the movie industry and TV show industry. I mean, like they've portrayed it as more as a good thing nowadays. Like in the movie, in the show, The Good Doctor, his mental illness helps him figure out things that others can't and actually helps some of the bad situations. That's cool. I've never heard of that. What mental illness did he have? I can't remember specifically. I haven't seen the show in quite a while, but I do remember that he had a mental illness so that he could somehow see the patient and understand what was wrong with them and what they needed to do to fix the patient and yeah. yeah. Like oh. some version of that maybe? Actually that does kind of ring a bell because I remember one time just like, you know, scrolling through TikTok I found they have like these little things with yeah. like parts and there was one where there was like a woman that she would like kiss him or something like that and she just couldn't control it and he figured it out somehow. It was like a tumor or something like that in her brain. and. I don't want to make any assumptions, but I remember them saying that he had autism. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Yeah. But yeah, that seems like a really cool show. Mm-hmm. So with uh, talking about The Good Doctor and the TV show and movie industry, recently in class we've been watching two movie versions of Romeo and Juliet, uh, a 19... 68 version and a 1996 version. Uh, so I have a couple questions uh, for you guys about uh, the locations of where they film these movies. So um, how do you guys think they are adapting the locations where they are filmed to both represent like the time era they want to represent in the movie and the characters? Um, well. I can see um, the uh, uh, ninety or sorry the sixty eight version clearly wanting to go for like the real Romeo and Juliet feel, um, kind of you know 
it's a classic for cross time, you know, you should watch it with your family, you know, um, maybe like the older part of the family, not the younger kids, might have some inappropriate scenes in there, fear, discretion, advised. But you can see how the 96 version kind of adapts for a modern audience, a desensitized generation who wants kind of shorter attention spans, you know, quick cuts, you get to see more action, you get to see uh, more fights kind of thing. Um, but they both do keep out some topics that Shakespeare included that might be a little more offensive or not portrayed as like a good thing in um, modern society, both in 1968 and 96. Yeah, I really do agree with what you said, because I found in the 1968 one, yeah, that's the... That's, yeah. yeah. Um, that one was, you know, I, their scenery, scenery was mostly like, I kind of felt like it seemed to be the colors weren't as vibrant. It was like there were bricks all over the place. So it, was, it seemed to be more like, you know, older to like, you know, represent his play. Exactly. Whereas that was very uh, different from the time it was actually filmed because in 1968 was where multiple colors were being introduced into clothing and advertisement and basically the world. It was producing more like neon colors and yeah. like vibrant colors. Whereas, exactly. Kind of flowers. And whereas yeah. the movie represented Renaissance time where it's not as vibrant colors and more plain colors and how they coordinated red to be Capulets and blue to be Montagues. Yeah, exactly. Like, I felt like the blue and the red were pretty much the only vibrant colors. However, you know, back in the, the 1960... Um, they're very vibrant, kind of remind you of tropical, like Hawaii yeah. or California. Yeah, because I, I think the, that time, the 1990s, was when Hawaiian shirts were very popular. I mean, they still are very popular to this day, but they were very popular back then, and you can see the, uh, Montague, the Montagues wearing a lot of uh, vibrant colors, whereas the Capulets were very... Um, very serious looking and more elegant but still very vibrant yeah for sure like i felt like compared to the older version this one was much more relaxed like in the way how they dress you know it's kind of like they're going on a vacation for the the montagues or like you know it's just like colorful flower shirts and stuff like that exactly so, yeah, yeah. So, um, how do you guys think, relating back to uh, my past episode uh, about Bard on the Beach, how do you guys think Bard on the Beach adapts their festival to not only BC as a location, but also the BC weather? I can see how, you know, they do it in the summer and they have to, I, I'm sure they've postponed some of the uh, um, events a couple of times just due to the fact that uh, rain BC in Vancouver, but I'm sure they um, plan ahead, you know, look at the weather um, and they just dress accordingly and make sure they're um, ready for, you know, anything kind of 
Yeah, like Tom said, you know, they try to dress accordingly, meaning like even for their makeup and stuff, they if it's like raining, you make sure to put like a waterproof setting spray or something. So you always have to like just be careful that if it's gonna be raining, to just be prepared and stuff. And I'm 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 guessing I haven't been there in a while. I don't think or yeah, I think I went when I was pretty young, but they had like umbrellas and like stuff all over the place. It was if it was a raining rainy day, so they did adapt to it. Yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, from what I know of the location of the festival and the setup they do for the amphitheater, uh, mainly it's the stage that's covered, but I think they like they plan it so that it is in the summertime, like Thomas said, so that you know the audience doesn't get rained on or yeah. you know snowed on or anything mm -hmm. to do with BC weather. Yeah, for sure. They want it to be like it an enjoyable experience rather exactly. than just sitting in the rain for yeah. a couple hours. And speaking of um, you know, Julia and the plays and um, whatnot, uh, literary devices, this is such a conversation jump, but they're used in the plays, right? And they're used in many movies and plays, and they're, you know, they're used in original Shakespearean works, um, and they're very successful, they're very cool, and uh, yeah. Yeah. We should re-record that. That was horrible. Speaking of the plays in Romeo and Juliet, um, literary devices are used quite uh, a lot in Romeo and Juliet. As we can see, they're used in many Shakespearean works um, to great success, and they're still recognized today. Yeah, in both the Baz Luhrmann and the 1960 or 1996 version of Shakespeare, the 1968 version and the play itself, we can both see some literary devices used. Yeah, the three main ones are metaphor, symbolism, and dramatic irony, and are very important um, to the kind of aspects and themes of Romeo and Juliet. Um, and they've been used in many Shakespeare plays, but they're in. A, they're essential all to Romeo and Juliet and the plot within Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, Romeo thinks that when he goes to the party where he meets Juliet, there will be some consequences, and that will end in untimely death in Act 1, Scene 4. Both lovers announce to Friar Lawrence that they will commit suicide if they cannot be together. Yeah, the dramatic irony and foreshadowing within um, Romeo and Juliet is quite palpable. I just got a question before we go on with the conversation. Have you guys found any times in your life where you felt foreshadowing was there, or do you think that's just kind of like a book thing or a movie thing? I I'm not too sure. Um, I I mean I I do have deja vu sometimes, yeah. but I don't know if that's specifically foreshadowing. No, no yeah. I, I feel like they just keep it to books and movies Yeah, and I can think of one time, um, once when I was watching a hockey game, um, my uh, dog accidentally knocked down like a, like, a, like a little action figure of the team, and I'm like, oh, does that mean they're going to lose? And they ended up just losing in overtime. Um, it was a really good game. It wasn't an important game or anything, but... They still lost in the end. Oh no. <laughs> Might have been your dog's fault. It was definitely my dog's yeah. fault. And I didn't knock on wood or anything, oh, so, no. you know. Yeah, uh, you know, on the topic of Larry devices, uh, Romeo and Juliet metaphors are 
also quite visible in all the versions. Yeah, you can see how Romeo keeps using metaphors to describe Juliet's beauty, comparing her to a beauty of the sun and stars. Do you guys think that metaphors, speaking of metaphors, do you think they like kind of fit the play, um, like in the themes and like the idea of true love? Definitely. I I feel like there you can find many metaphors in this play and in the movie versions. Uh, you just have to look for them and. Mm -hmm. There, there can be so many different possibilities and different point of views that you see it. So if you see certain people as good guys rather than bad guys, or if you see, um, you know, different characters as being more powerful or mm -hmm. less powerful, you can see different themes and different metaphors. And mm -hmm. I could, you can also see, like, people use metaphors, like, like mentioned earlier, Romeo and Juliet. Oh, your beauty is more than the sun and the stars and the moon and whatnot. Like, all that. It's very romantic, so you can kind of see it, it will fit the type of play. Yeah, and I also love how he includes them because, in my opinion, I always find it fun just, like, trying to find them during the play, yeah. which is quite entertaining. And I find that it does add to the play a lot. Thank you so much for listening to the fourth episode of Ski Stuff. Come back soon for the fifth episode. If you could please subscribe, that would be a huge help, and it's free. Just one click or tap makes a difference. Another big thank you to Julia and Rianne for coming in, having a conversation. And again, thank you for listening. See you next time. Keep dreaming about skiing, and peace out.